0: guys welcome again to another edition of Tim's takeaways and this is the version of Tim's takeaway for the EMT and dealing with psychiatric emergencies um, so again this will be the psychiatric emergency portion for the EMT you know um, as we go through uh, today's society we recognize that dealing with behavior, Um, or some type of crisis such as a psychiatric emergency or even a behavioral emergency is something that um, we're starting to see increase more and more a lot of that um, as we'll find out may be due to a lot of the uh, advancements that have happened in psychiatric medicine in addition to that I think that um, our practices from the past have actually moved us forward and as a result have enabled us to really take charge of the situation, and particularly those veterans that have been returning from our fights overseas and even potentially locally, um, we're finding that we're able to hopefully help them out a lot more, and in turn, it helps us out as well. Just because somebody is experiencing one of these issues, right, um, people may end up calling us because of an acute medical situation um, and we may identify that with some type of mental illness it doesn't necessarily mean that that is that they're mental that always used to be the thing when, at least when I was growing up well it could be the result of stress and there's a lot of other causes that can be that can come from it and you know a lot of times there's myths of what's happening Particularly when people have an emotional crisis, they think that, oh my gosh, I've gone mental. You know, but the reality is this, that most people do experience some form of an emotional crisis in their life. And this doesn't mean that everyone, as a result of that, is going to develop some form of mental illness. Really, a lot of times these things that we take a look at are um, something that's acute, maybe temporary. And we shouldn't jump to conclusions that a patient is mentally ill just because they have some behaviors that will identify throughout this whole area. Now the most common misperception about any form of mental illness is that if you're feeling bad or depressed, well then you must be sick. But you know what, the reality is this. We all have suffered some form of depression at one time in our life or another. Whether or not this was through, you know, death of somebody that you knew, Um, it could be somebody who has left, could be uh, the loss of a job, maybe it was something, uh, you know, through a divorce. These are common triggers that cause individuals to feel bad or depressed and that is not a bad thing. Um, Doesn't mean that you're sick and that you have mental illness. Many people know um, that all individuals, or many people believe that all individuals with mental health disorders are dangerous, violent, and otherwise they might have to be institutionalized because nobody can handle them. But really, that's only a small part of what we deal with. We may be exposed as EMS providers to more violent patients because of what we are truly seeing. So this is what truly, by definition, may be us looking at somebody who may be having a behavioral crisis. And as we'll find out, it may not always be related to behavior, um, a mental issue. This may be something that is also a medical issue that is identifying itself as what seems to be a behavioral change, and therefore that's what it gets classified as by a lot of people. But in regards to all this, you know, communication is the key. And I have spoken about this in many of my own classes saying, you know what, you know, part of a team, and that's what we are as EMS providers, is we are a team. And that means that we have to communicate and we have to be calm. And we use reassuring tones to really help de-escalate or lower that situation expectation down. You know, we can't determine what has caused this person to go into a crisis. So we, though, may be able to predict whether or not that person is going to become violent. So that means that we have to be able to start reading what is happening with individuals. So behavior is what you see of a person's response to the environment. It's basically what their actions are. And sometimes stress becomes overwhelming, and the normal ways in which people really take on this and the way that they cope with it isn't enough. So therefore, they start to turn to other things, and they may actually withdraw from their friends. They may put themselves in isolation. They may turn to drugs and alcohol. And by the way, go back to that withdraw area you know somebody that you even on the job may have seen that they have always been this outgoing individual and they loved going out with their friends and now they don't want any part of it you know those are things we really need to take a look at these reactions that we just talked about can be acute or things that can develop over time either way these are things that are not normal um, and therefore, they're seen as a change, and this is what can create a crisis. Now, this behavior crisis, or as our chapter talks about a psychiatric emergency, or this subject, um, may involve patients of different ages, from the, the very young to the very old. They could become agitated. They may be violent. They can be uncooperative. Or they are truly a danger to themselves and others. And a lot of times, if these patterns of abnormal behavior last for a month or more, it really is something that should be a concern from at least a mental health standpoint. Let's find out what's going on. So patients may show agitation or violence, they become a threat to themselves or others, as we talked about just a little bit ago, and that's when we really become concerned. But what can we identify, or what did the caller, who's calling us, and by the way, as I'm going through here, I'm saying we, because these are things that as EMS providers, we also need to be able to recognize in ourselves. Mental health disorders are common throughout the United States, and they affect millions of people every year. A psychiatric disorder is identified as as an illness with psychological symptoms that may result in some type of impaired function, whereas an anxiety disorder are among the most common of those mental health disorders that I just described. This may be panic attacks. There may be phobias you know they're afraid of certain things and by the way i'm not talking about just a little normal um i don't want to say little normal i'm not trying to degrade it but you know if you're afraid of spiders that's understandable but if you've been afraid of spiders all your life that's that's one thing but maybe it was they were involved in a motor vehicle collision and now they have this fear of going outside or they have this fear of going out into a car Post-traumatic stress disorder, we hear an awful lot about that, and at the present time, uh, this is April of 2019, that there is current regulate or current legislation, that is being proposed, at least in Pennsylvania, to make this post-traumatic stress injury, because we recognize that this actually is something that can occur on the job for all first responders. And of course, there's also... Other issues such as post or I'm sorry, such as obstructive or obsessive compulsive disorder. And I hear this a lot. You know, people say, Oh, my OCD is kicking in. But the reality is, when people develop or have obsessive compulsive disorder, it is not what we would normally think it to be. Um, a lot of times, these folks may exhibit, we by the way, all exhibit signs and symptoms of obsessive compulsive disorders on a daily basis. We have those things that essentially bug the poop out of us. So we recognize that in the health system the mental health system provides many levels of assistance to people who have some type of psychological conditionings. These may be counselors, these may be people that are really available for marital or parenting issues. I've said before, when you come into this world We have an owner's manual for everything, except for how to raise a child or how to live. Those are always wonderful little things that I think people need to to pay attention to, that it's tough and it's okay to ask for help. Now, there are more serious issues where you may find an individual who has significant clinical depression, and that needs to really be handled by a psychologist. And then there are conditions such as schizophrenia or a bipolar disorder, which now requires some medications. And psychiatrists at this point need to become involved. We as EMS providers are not going to be responsible um, for really diagnosing what the underlying medical problem from a psychiatric emergency or behavioral crisis is all about. But to recognize that our physician counterparts are going to technically identify these into really two different categories. They're going to identify them as being organic or something that would be physical or psychological or something that we would identify as being functional. So organic you've probably heard before and we'll call it an organic brain syndrome, which may be something that is temporary or a permanent dysfunction of the brain. And usually this is something that is caused by um, some type of disturbance in the uh, physiological functioning of the brain tissue. This could be from traumatic brain injury, it could be from seizures, it may be from some acute illness, or it could also be from diseases such as Alzheimer's or meningitis. And one of the things that I think a lot of people then become worried about is, well, what about in today's society with all the heroin overdoses? And absolutely, um, drugs, alcohol, and withdrawal all play a role as well as to a development of an organic brain syndrome. Now, the other one I talked about or had mentioned was the um, functional or that um, it's, um, psychological issue, Where this is a uh, physiological, said psychological, physiological disorder that is impairing the body functions when the body seems to be structurally normally. So these may be folks that are looking at schizophrenia. This could be anxiety, or it could also be something such as depression. Now, when we approach these folks. And as I've done in previous Tim's Takeaways, this is not all about me coming back in through a subject and saying, here's what you gotta do for a scene size up and this is how you assess the patient. I'm gonna give you a couple tips. Again, if you're kind of stuck on what I need to do for a physical exam and a history, I would encourage you to go back and look at the physical um, assessments and identify how to obtain histories again. But in this case, when we talk about scene safety, this is one of those that we can talk the talk, but really, you have a lot of things that you need to take a look at. You need to be able to see what their environment is like. You know, I mean, we can talk about this all the time and say, oh, well, you know, what should I do? But you can never really let your guard down. Um, You need to be aware that you're probably, you could potentially be placed into a situation it's gonna cause a significant problem. And you need to always make sure that you're going to be able to find your way out. So what I mean by that is I have been on calls in which, you know, get called for a psychiatric emergency, and we're told that there has been a domestic abuse or a domestic situation, I shouldn't say abuse, a domestic situation has occurred. And when we arrive, we find Two individuals, one that we cannot see because they happen to be upstairs on the second floor of a house. The other individual is meeting us at the front door. And the police are not there yet. And your question is, do I go in? You know, what is the situation that's, that's at hand? Um, is it what you have been told? Were jacks of all and masters of none um, is oftentimes what I... Re- Phrase things to be. We have enough information oftentimes to be dangerous to ourselves as well as to our patients. And I'm not telling you not to go in. I'm not telling you that you should go in, but you have to assess the situation. Is your safety paramount? And if you say yes, then maybe it should be time for you to wait for the police. Because if you walk in and you find that this is somebody who has been beaten or has been murdered, what are you going to do when you find the body and the person who is standing at the door has now shut it and locked you in? Just some things to point out. Again, I'm not saying that people with mental disorders, um, all people with mental disorders are going to do things like this. But this gets into your scene safety issues. So we hear of people um, really making sure that um, what's going on with them. Uh, we talk about different things such as psychosis where a patient has a time in which they are out of touch with reality. And this can really affect people. Um, they live the, the way that they live in their own reality of ideas and feelings. And um, I know a lot of people are probably sitting there saying, well, isn't that most of the things that we see happening today? They live in their own world. Eh, not necessarily, but it is one of those things that, you know, what is their perception of reality? Schizophrenia is another uh, common or a complex disorder that really has not been easy to define or treat. Usually these symptoms become more prominent or dominant over time and usually occurs during early adulthood. These are folks that develop delusions, hallucinations, they lack a lot of interest in pleasure and they have a lot of erratic speech. So you wanna make sure that you're not when you've got to deal with these folks, you don't want to argue with them. Don't become emotionally involved. You need to be able to keep that emotional distance and explain to them who you are and what you would like to do. A lot of times, you have to bring people in that the patient trusts. This may be different family members or friends, and you have to be able to allow them to gain the patient's cooperation. Uh, at the same time, you have to make sure that you evaluate who these people are. They may claim that this person trusts them, but you have to look at their interaction with this individual. Now, excited delirium is something that we are hearing an awful lot of today. Um, it could be excited or agitated delirium is what a lot of people will call it. For the most part, we're going to call it more of a uh, excited delirium. Delirium in and of itself is some type of an impaired cognitive function that usually presents with people being disoriented or they have some type of delusions and they may also be suffering from some hallucinations. That agitated or excited part that you hear is because they're restless and they have a lot of um, irregular physical activity. They have uh, a lot of irrational behavior or very vivid hallucinations. You may find that when, you be able, when you're able to take their blood pressure, that their blood pressure is high. So they have um, not only high blood pressure, but they also may be tachycardic, and you find out that they're diaphoretic as well. And if you take a look at their pupils, they, they may be quite dilated as well. And if you think about what response system inside their nervous system is actually kicking in, mm -hmm, yeah, go back and take a look at another Tim's takeaway and find out about what may be causing all those things to occur. Yeah, uh, I had a pun, but now I can't remember it. Anyway, if you think um, safely about things that you have and a way that you approach your patients, you need to be calm, supportive, be empathetic. You know, when you approach these patients, you do it slowly, you do it with purpose, and of course you respect their personal space. You should really limit physical contact. And what I mean by that is is that in most times, if I sit down, if my patient is sitting in a chair or sitting on the couch, it's not uncommon that I sit beside them. But in these cases, you may not be able to sit beside them right away. You may be invading their personal space. You have to build up that trust. So you have to watch your interviewing techniques and find out how they're answering questions. It will give you the idea as to how well they can communicate clearly. You may also be able to see that the way they have been taking care of themselves, use your senses, what you see, what you hear, what you smell, you know, look at how well they're dressing. Does it, does it seem like they've been taking care of themselves personal hygiene-wise? If they've experienced an overdose, um, you need to take the medication bottles with you. And if it's an illegal substance, you need to try to find out what it is. You know, um, a lot of times, and, and again, we talk about this before, using red lights and siren to get these folks to the hospital Um, really can aggravate the situation so maybe keeping it much calmer than what we have done before. If the patient is still agitated one of the best things that a BLS provider can do would be to seek the assistance of a ALS practitioner or an ALS provider because this allows them the ability to potentially chemically restrain patients and This is much better thing to do than to physically restrain people. And uh, the terminology is changing. We're trying to get away from chemical restraints. Um, I forget the name of it. Uh, But we're trying to help calm the patient down using medications so that it is going to be um, less harmful to the patient. You know, when we physically restrain people, um, it can cause a problem. And people who have excited delirium can develop a metabolic acidosis because of this physical agitation. And then if we start fighting them and we restrain them and they get placed into different positions, you know, physically that we really don't want them, then it can create a problem and it can go into cardiac arrest. So when we restrain people, I would encourage you to make sure that you check your own protocols. You know, Pennsylvania does have a protocol that actually does talk about when we should be able to restrain an individual um, and when we should not. And those really need to come into play. And if you're listening along, which I guess you are, and you have the ability to take a look at a protocol, I would suggest that you go to protocol number 801, which deals with agitated behavior behavior in psychiatric emergencies. It kind of talks about how you can utilize restraints, and a lot of these protocols do follow the National Association of EMS Physicians' recommendations on using patient restraints. It talks about the appropriateness of restraining people, how we care for them after we have restrained them, and what types of restraints we can utilize. But remember that you're restraining somebody, and oftentimes this may be um, things that may be against their will. So it does create some legal issues that we may run into a problem with. And that's why it is imperative that you are aware of the protocols and what they say that you can and can't do. Because this means that if you restrain people without the proper authority, um, you could be uh, have legal action brought against you for false imprisonment. Violating their own rights assault and battery and if you take them to the hospital, that's kidnapping as well So the restraints are used only to protect yourself and others From bodily harm or to prevent the patient from injuring themselves as well anytime that you're utilizing restraints you really should have law enforcement personnel available to help you out and um, you know, prior to doing any type of physical restraints, it's important that you try to de-escalate the situation by just talking to them. You know, talking makes the process go a whole lot better. But unfortunately, if you've already had to make that decision to restrain someone, you need to carry it out as quickly as possible. Um, you know, there should be a person who's going to direct that process and, and identify what we're gonna do. There needs to be minimal force that is going to be used. Remember, this is to help them, not hurt them. So the degree of force that is necessary to keep them from injuring themselves or others really is dependent on that individual. It depends on, you know, being male or female. It depends on how small or big they are. talks about how strong they may be. And if they're on certain mind-altering medications, it may make them even stronger. You know, so we also have to look at the possibility that they may be involved or have overdosed with some medications as well. So you need to make sure that you and your partner talk through throughout this process to make sure that everybody is being respected and that there um, is dignity for all involved. Make sure that you're wearing appropriate protection as we have talked about before and you know, uh, avoiding direct eye contact in respect of the patient's personal space until it's absolutely necessary, maybe also one of those things. But again, you have to be careful because if you're trying to be surprising to them, that may backfire on you as well. Because guess what? A lot of times they're reading your body language as well. Usually, we like to refer to four point restraints where you're using their arms and both legs. And this is usually the preferred method of restraining people, and this is also something in which you need to make sure that you're keeping an eye on how well they're able to breathe. Now, if a patient who you feel is becoming potentially violent, you know you need to base a few things uh, um, on your own experience. You know, do they have a history of being having violent behavior? We have, uh, at my service, we have an individual who has been known to not only assault EMS, but has also assaulted the police officers. So when that call comes in, our team of EMS professionals and law enforcement work together to try to make the situation the best that we can. So we have to evaluate the posture of the individual. We can tell when that individual is getting rigid or sitting on the edge of their seat like they're ready to go. We find out whether or not they have anything around them. Are we talking things such as a knife or gun, or do they have some type of glassware that is sitting beside them? What about a bat? Or are they right near a door or window where they can bolt through? What kind of speech are they using? Are they loud and obscene? And you know the problem that usually occurs there is, is that then we become the same way. We respond to them. In a de-escalation, you need to help calm them down, not reach their level of, of, you know, vocal tones, right? Look at their physical activity. Are they tensing up their muscles? Are they giving you those glaring eyes? Are they pacing? They can't really sit still. And, you know, don't go into their personal space. That just is going to potentially make that situation worse. Watch for poor impulse control. You know, if people have a history of an uncontrolled temper or substance abuse, these are problems. And truly, depression accounts for about 20% of all violent attacks. So if the patient, though, I must tell you, if they have a functional disorder, and this is where if the patient tells you that there are voices that are telling him or her to kill somebody, or to kill you, you better believe it. This is what they're going to try and do. Suicide is one of those things that I think a lot of us don't want to uh, deal with anymore. Um, It used to be a really bad misperception or a misconception about what it is, and that people who threaten suicide never commit it, and that could be not further from the truth. It's usually an indication that someone is in crisis and they cannot handle something alone and they don't know what to do. So look for those people that are feeling sad or hopeless and they suggest that they're really being depressed about a lot of things. They may appear to be detached from specific situations or have the inability to talk about the future. They they can't tell you what the future is going to hold for them or what their plans are going to be. If they tell you that they just wish they were dead, these are suggestions of suicide. So you need to look to see if they're in an unsafe environment, if they've had evidence that they're self destructing. You know, is this that they are trying to cut themselves or um, they have ligature marks around their neck? They've had multiple overdoses. You know, these are things we need to look at. Oftentimes, these things, by the way, They may also be uh, as a result of some type of recent physical or psychological trauma. It may be uh, something that a social belief is is telling them to go and commit suicide. It may be uh, some underlying medical problem that they just don't want to deal with anymore. One of the other things that we'll talk about real quick about is called, uh, we mentioned it earlier, which is, post-traumatic stress disorder. And as I said, we're trying to see that this is becoming identified as an injury so that it falls under workers' compensation. Now, it seems like that is something that is a lot easier to deal with than a disorder. But it does make a big difference because in our own folks, we've recognized that in veterans that they are experiencing an awful lot of problems with PTSD of the things that they have seen. And first responders are the same way. So we have to be able to recognize this. And by the way, it's appearing in almost 10% of the general population. And military personnel, as I said earlier, really have one of those highest incidents of post-traumatic stress. They have feelings of helplessness. They have um, feelings that there are you know, a lot of anxiety and anger. And they may also develop some fear. They may avoid things that remind them of the trauma. They may identify that their heart rate begins to increase and their uh, senses are sharpened and their mental acuity is heightened. It's almost like they have developed that sixth sense of what's going on. Now disassociated PTSD occurs when a person attempts to find an escape from this constant internal distress of a disturbing event. And this puts a lot of these folks at an increased risk of suicide. Um, We recognize that, particularly veterans today, may develop a variety of physical conditions related to injuries that they've sustained in combat, as well as from some other unfocused pain that may be from a specific body part. They may have traumatic brain injuries or they may have suffered some type of secondary trauma as a result of an IED explosion, which is an improvised explosive device. So as a result of that, we need to be very careful about the way that we approach people and make sure that we're eliminating a lot of excessive noise and not touching or doing anything to these folks without an explanation. When folks, particularly the combat veterans, are returning, we have to be careful how we use and phrase our questions. Be calm. Use a good, firm voice. Make sure that you're in charge. But again, you know, you got to have respect for what they have done and respect their personal space. You don't need to put a lot of people in the room to make them feel uncomfortable. The physical restraining of veteran personnel may not be very effective for you. Because this really can uh, escalate the problem. And by the way, keep in mind that they have been trained and conditioned to actually improvise weapons. Um, So that training that they use to defend us may actually come back to hurt us later on. So you have to be careful about these things. As you can tell, we've talked a lot about the uh, what can you do and what can't you do. And the medical legal aspect of this really is complicated. Um, But, once we have determined that an individual has an impaired mental capacity, we have to decide whether or not we need to provide immediate emergency medical care. But whatever you do, do not leave the patient alone and request law enforcement. If law enforcement is with you, it really gives you that advantage of having someone else to help you out. Get consent. You know, implied consent is one of those things that are typically assumed that a patient who is not mentally competent to grant the consent, that's something that we can utilize. But these matters are not always clear-cut when it comes to psychiatric emergencies. So this is why if you're not sure, you need to speak with the law enforcement personnel that are there, and you may also need to contact medical direction. We do have limited legal authority to force a patient to undergo some type of emergency medical procedure even when there's no life-threatening emergency that exists. Because we're guaranteed that as a competent adult we have the right to refuse care even if it is a life-threatening injury. So oftentimes though psychiatric cases if you're attempting to provide life-saving appropriate care even though they don't want it, um, it may you have to make sure that you're erring on the side of caution for the betterment of the patient. And in addition to that, it's one of those areas that you need to make sure that you clearly document what you see with the, with the patient as far as their behavior. And anything that they say in regards to potentially a threat. Is something that you need to mark down in your documentation in quotes. So I think with that, that's going to conclude this edition of Tim's Takeaway on Psychiatric Emergencies for the EMT. Hope to see you on the next one. Stay safe.